Hi, I'm Chantelle. And I'm Matthew. And we're founders of Fifth Place, where our mission is to make the world a better place by enabling the how. Welcome, Welcome to, to our Emotions Matter, Matter Really podcast. podcast. In this podcast, we explore everything about emotions, feelings, and what it is to become and remain emotionally fit. We interrogate the taboo around expressing and talking about emotions and feelings. We talk about all those things we want less of, like stress, anxiety, and burnout, and the things we want more of, like sleep, calm, and self-care. We explore tools, tips and techniques for managing your emotions. We examine what it means to be emotionally fit and why this equals a better quality of life. Hello, hello. It's another week and another podcast. How are you doing with you? Hi there. Hi Chantel and hi there to you. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm kind of excited. Well, I'm very excited about this particular podcast because we are talking about a person who's quite dear to my heart. Yes, we are going to be talking about Nelson Mandela. The 18th of July is International Nelson Mandela Day. And so we have chosen to do this podcast focusing on him and in particular his book called The Long Walk to Freedom. Um, so yes, Nelson Mandela is close to your heart. Well, I believe that Nelson Mandela embodies many of the principles, the qualities, the abilities that encompass what it takes to become and remain emotionally fit, as we like to say. And we're going to explore aspects, excerpts from the book, and in particular quotes and things like that, and really then just share our perspective on them as well as how we perceive him to be and the remarkable position that he held, not only here for South Africa, but the model of a human being mm. that he put up for all of us to aspire to be. Yes, indeed. And his book, uh, The Long Walk to Freedom, was published in 1994. And I received it. I got that book somewhere around there. But, you know, I never read it. I started reading it and I just, I just couldn't stick with it. It's quite a big book. It's really thick. And I do have it, but if you think I could find it somewhere in our library, which we have here, I couldn't. So I had to download it. But the upside of having it downloaded is that I could have it read to me, you know, on, on my phone. You can put it so that you hear the audio of the book as well. So that was quite fun. But I didn't quite manage to read all nearly 650 pages of the book this week. Uh, but the bit that I did, nearly half of it that I did, there were some really interesting pieces that came out of it that we're going to go through and then just reflect on in terms of our work and in terms of some of the learnings. Mm, certainly learnings for us, reminders for us of what it takes to be emotionally fit. Because as we say, often it's not a once-off, it's a process, it's a journey. We could even say it's a long walk. <laughs> oh, there we go. Right. Uh, Nelson Mandela was born 
on the 18th of July, and that's why we have International Nelson Mandela Day on the 18th of July, in 1918 in a tiny little village called Mvezo in the Transkei. For those of you that aren't familiar with the geography of South Africa, Transkei is situated in the Eastern Cape. It is 800 miles east of Cape Town, 500 miles south of where we are here in Johannesburg, and it lies between the Kai River and the KwaZulu-Natal border on the Indian Ocean. He spent most of his childhood there um, and his teen years. He actually ran away to Johannesburg. And when he came to Johannesburg, he stayed in a place called Alex. And in his book, he writes, Alexandra, which is a township just outside Santon, occupies a treasured place in my heart. It was the first place I ever lived away from home. Even though I was later to live in Orlando, a small section of Soweto, for a far longer period than I did in Alexandra, I always regarded Alexandra Township as a home where I had no specific house and Orlando as a place where I had a house but no home. And Alex has a special place in our story too, doesn't it, Matthew? Indeed it does. And there are some interesting parallels between the journey, uh, the life story of Nelson Mandela and our work, and in particular, sometimes how the work chooses you, your destiny, or why you are here, or as a movie that we watched recently likes to describe it, your mission. (laughs) And Alex was really where the inspiration first came, the first story that we heard about trauma in schools, in townships, under resourced environments here, was in Alex. And so, yes, little did we know it at the time, but that's where our story began. To continue, Nelson Mandela writes in chapter 11 of his journey into politics, and he says, I had no epiphany, no singular revelation, no moment of truth, and this is what you were talking about, but a steady accumulation of a thousand slights a thousand indignities, a thousand unremembered moments, produced in me an anger, a rebelliousness, a desire to fight the system that imprisoned my people. And that's what you were saying. It's not necessarily something big that starts a journey. No, and I think that what Nelson Mandela, what his life, his journey, his work, invites us all to do is to find those particular things that cause us discomfort those slights, whatever they may be, and then challenge us to do something about it. Yes, and on a a more happier note, he talks about children and the impact that children had on him. He says, in fact, I love playing with children and chatting with them. It has always been one of the things that make me feel most at peace. And indeed, here's another parallel because our work certainly on the outside, was inspired by children, a desire to do something to support and help children with the trauma that they were experiencing in the townships, in the under-resourced spaces, as well as driven by me in particular, some of the childhood wounding that I had experienced growing up. And then it makes sense in some ways, if you really consider it, that so many of our challenges as adults Mm. around emotional fitness, around mental well-being, mental health, however you wish to describe it, originate Mm. from childhood. 
So what better place to begin by looking to create a solution or something than working with children? Yes, and Nelson Mandela always liked to be with children. He just, it was such a lovely image to see him with children on his lap, talking to them. He always had time for them. It was amazing. He goes on, and obviously we are taking leaps and bounds through this book, but he uh, becomes a member of the National Executive Committee of the ANC. And he said, I was playing on the first team with the most senior people in the ANC. I'd moved from the role of a gadfly within the organization to one of the powers that I'd been rebelling against. It was a heady feeling and not without mixed emotions. In some ways, it is easier to be a dissident, for then one is without responsibility. As a member of the executive, I had to weigh arguments and make decisions and expect to be criticized by rebels like myself. Yeah, I think uh, it's very telling because when you don't have any skin in the game, then you can be quite liberal with your criticism and your decision making because Mm -hmm. it's going to have very little impact. We see it a lot at this particular juncture in our lives, in the world with politicians. They make seemingly large choices with impunity. And as we see regularly in the news and the media, Mm -hmm. they don't actually adhere to those choices very often Mm -hmm. for themselves. And here we have Nelson Mandela really reconciling those two things. When you are in a position of responsibility and in a position of power, it's very important to slow down and be a little bit more measured and consider the consequences of, first of all, what comes out of your mouth, (laughs) and then secondly, how you choose to behave. And those are qualities which really illuminate or illustrate, perhaps is a better word, a capacity for being emotionally fit. Yes, and... Being emotionally fit um, is a requirement for somebody who is a leader as well. Key to being a great leader in this instance. It's much easier being a follower or somebody standing on the sidelines criticizing, which these days is very easy when it comes to social media. Did you know that Nelson Mandela was a boxer? He says, I was never an outstanding boxer. I was in the heavyweight division. And I had neither the power, neither enough power to compensate for my lack of speed, nor enough speed to make up for my lack of power. I did not enjoy the violence of boxing so much as the science of it. I was intrigued by how one moved one's body to protect oneself, how one used a strategy both to attack and retreat, how one paced oneself over a match. Boxing is egalitarian. In the ring, rank, age, colour and wealth are irrelevant and again here's another little quirky example and i mean these are just just whatever they are whatever you wish to uh, or whatever meaning you wish to ascribe to them but in uh, johannesburg uh, towards the west side of the cbd is a statue or a sculpture of nelson mandela the boxer and that particular sculpture was created by someone that i was at primary school with that is amazing the connections that we uh, that we find in these places. He also said of the boxing that he never he he found the re- the rigorous exercise to be an excellent outlet for tension and stress. After a strenuous workshop workout after a strenuous workout not workshop, I felt both mentally and physically lighter. It was a way of losing myself in something that was not the struggle. 
After an evening's workout, I would wake up the next morning feeling strong and refreshed, ready to take up the fight again. Yeah, and what do we say about the body and coming back to the body, moving the body? Again, these are all very effective ways to shift emotion, move it along. You know, nothing to see here. Move on out, <laughs> move out the body. And yes. uh, whether he knew it consciously or unconsciously, whatever the inspiration was, again, physical activity is a great way to regulate your emotions and contribute to, well, dare I say it, emotional fitness. <laughs> Absolutely. And so um, he gets arrested oh. one of many times. One of many times, yes. yes. You know, which time was this? <laughs> yes, he gets arrested. Uh, and this was after some time when, you know, they were they were not allowed to be, I mean, the... the the South African government at the time really did make make things really, really difficult for people to meet. Um, you were banned. You were not allowed to meet in groups. There were all kinds of restrictions. Mm, segregation laws, you had to actually have something akin to a passport yes. to move around because there were areas demarcated for white people only and people of color. And if you were found as a person of color in a zoned white area without this particular passport control mechanism, you could get into a lot of trouble. Mm, you could be locked up, uh, which uh, was something that they, they feared. There was this, this fear constantly of being locked up in your own country because you were in a restricted area. It was just uh, mind-boggling. In this instance, though, he talks about how they had been arrested and all of these Freedom fighters were put together in a communal cell. And he says, our communal cell became a kind of convention for far-flung freedom fighters. Many of us had been living under severe restrictions, making it illegal for us to meet and talk. Now, our enemy had gathered, gathered us all together under one roof for what became the largest and longest unbanned meeting of the Congress Alliance in years. Younger leaders met older leaders they had only read about. Men from Natal mingled with leaders from the Transvaal. We reveled in the opportunity to exchange ideas and experiences for two weeks while we awaited trial. Wasn't that ironic? Well, I think it's ironic, but what a great reframe. The ability to take a situation which on the one hand is, is dire and find an alternate meaning in it. Find the gift in the trying experience. Mm, he did that a lot. Um, he said suddenly there were no clauses or Zulus, no Indians or Africans, no rightists or leftists, no religious or political leaders. We were all nationalists and patriots bound together by a love of our common history, our culture, our country and our people. In that moment, something stirred deep inside all of us, something strong and intimate that bound us to one another. In that moment, we felt the hand of the great past that made us what we were and the power of the great cause that linked us all together. Again, I just want to make an observation. We may not all have great causes that we can aspire to have or to hold or to bring into the world, but whatever your cause is, find it. Find that meaning and purpose. Mm. As you'll see later on, it was purpose that kept Nelson Mandela going when he was incarcerated for nearly three decades. Mm. He, that particular trial that they was, they weren't, um, they weren't found guilty, uh, but he did have to go underground again as a result of all the restrictions that were, 
that were put on um, anybody that was against the government. And certainly anybody, you didn't even have to be against the government in some instances, you just had to be not white. So he talks about how he spent two months in um, somebody's flat in Berea, which at that time was a white, white area. It was Wolfie Kodesha's flat. Uh, he slept on a campaign stretcher, staying inside during the day with the blinds drawn, reading and planning, leaving only for meetings or organizing sessions at night. And he says, I annoyed Wolfie every morning for I would wake up at five, change into my sweat clothes and run in place for more than an hour. Wolfie eventually surrendered to my regime and began working out with me in the morning before he left for town. Doesn't that say something about discipline? Again, discipline, tenacity, consistency, coming back again and again. These are all qualities which talk into the process of building emotional fitness mm -hmm. and staying emotionally fit. And again, whether he was aware of it or not, while he was building physical fitness, those particular qualities also lend themselves to becoming and staying emotionally resilient and emotionally fit. Mm, yes, that discipline and practice that we always talk about. Because mm, it is, it's a practice. Mm. And they're coming back because you will falter and fall and fail. But it's in the coming back where the magic happens. Mm. Yes. He then went and was sent on a trip out of South Africa for the first time into the rest of Africa to go and raise money and... Um, raise awareness of what was happening in South Africa, but with particular reference to Mkunta Siswe, which was the military arm they of, the, the, of the ANC. They decided that they were no longer going to just try and fight for their cause passively or and peacefully, peacefully, but they were going to do so um, using uh, more aggressive methods. And they obviously needed money for this. Mm, things like sabotage. Yes, well, that was the first port of call, was to go for sabotage rather than anything worse than that. It was going to be sabotage, then it was going to be guerrilla warfare, but they certainly didn't want, the idea was never to... Um, Engage in full-on civil war. No, absolutely, and also they wanted to try and minimise the loss of life. Anyway, he flies out of South Africa and he goes to what is today called... Tanzania, but then was called Tanganyika. And he says, for the first time in my life, I was a free man. Though I was a fugitive and wanted in my own land, I felt the burden of oppression lifting from my shoulders. Everywhere I went in Tanganyika, my skin color was automatically accepted rather than instantly reviled. I was being judged for the first time, not by the color of my skin, but by the measure of my mind and character. Although I was often homesick during my travels, I nevertheless felt as though I was truly home for the first time. It's crazy to think that something you can do nothing about, namely the color of your skin, mm. causes you to be in such a situation. You can rebel against your culture. You can rebel against other aspects, your religion perhaps. But it's very difficult to rebel against the color of your skin. It's something you can do nothing about. And yet here is a person, or at that time there were many people, the majority of the population of the country, in fact, mm. were being... Um, persecuted. Mm, persecuted. For, and traumatized. Mm. And I mean, I can only imagine what it must have felt like, like a breathing out and exhale to be suddenly just accepted. Because all around you, well, everybody... Is the same as you. Mm. Yes, that must have been 
quite mind-boggling for him. In in social contexts, I mean, of course. You know, as opposed to always wherever being in a bunker or a closed-up room, obviously people there were the same. But being able to be outside, yes, free and walk around freely without yeah. feeling that you were going to be attacked in some form. He was eventually arrested when he came back to South Africa. He was driving down to Natal to a meeting and he was eventually arrested um, and driven back. But he said that the police were quite slack and they certainly didn't um, have any particular precautions with him. They certainly didn't cuff him. When they stopped to take breaks, they let him walk around, briefly stretch his legs. And he said, although he could have, I did not contemplate escape when people were kind to me. I did not want to take advantage of the trust they placed in me. Now, obviously, we are only going on our vicarious experience of the person, having never had the pleasure or privilege to meet Nelson mm. Mandela in person. And what really comes up for me there, Chantelle, is this long-haul ideal. Mm. He could have compromised his beliefs, he's compromised his values in the short term. But what starts to become very apparent is that here is a man who lives his convictions and his ideals and his values. And so just for the sake of a, a short term sort of quick kind of getaway type thing, he could have compromised the whole long term project of freeing South Africa from the yoke of apartheid. And also that he didn't want to, he, he had a real honouring of the other person. You know, he wasn't going to take advantage of them. No, I think that talks into the character side of it, as he said earlier in that passage earlier about being measured. Mm. And I know that another person that we have a lot of time for is Dr. Martin Luther King mm -hmm. Jr. And he says similar things. And so here Nelson Mandela was treating people with the same respect mm. as with which he consistently asked to be treated. Yes. So he was up in Johannesburg and he was going to be incarcerated and they allowed him to meet with his wife, Winnie. Uh, he says here, the officer supervising the vi visit turned a blind eye and we embraced and clung to each other with all the strength and pent up emotion inside each of us as if this were to be the final parting. In a way it was, for we were to be separated for much longer than either of us could have imagined. The warrant officer allowed me to accompany Winnie part of the way to the main gate, where I was able to watch her alone and proud disappear around the corner. And I think here what we start to look at in terms of the character of the man, because we're getting deeper into the time when he spent all that time uh, locked away is now not only does he have to reconcile the way he feels about being imprisoned for his beliefs and his ideology and the cause that he has decided to take up but here is the person that you know at some point he stood in witness of and said till death to us part and now she's been literally ripped away mm. and he has no control and so how does he deal with those emotions? Where does he put them? How does he manage them? Yes, um, it is hard to contemplate how he did that and things were only going to get worse because he was put into isolation. 
He said, for the next few weeks, I was completely and utterly isolated. I did not see the face or hear the voice of another prisoner. I was locked up for 23 hours a day with 30 minutes of exercise in the morning and again in the afternoon. I had never been in isolation before and every hour seemed like a year. There was no natural light in my cell. A single bulb burned overhead 24 hours a day. I did not have a wristwatch and I often thought it was the middle of the night when it was only late afternoon. I had nothing to read, nothing to write with, no one to talk to. The mind begins to turn on itself and one desperately wants something outside of oneself on which to fix one's attention. I have known men to, to, who took half a dozen lashes in preference to being locked up alone. After a time in solitary, I relished the company even of the insects in my soul and found myself on the verge of initiating conversations with cockroaches. Now we have spoken about the impacts of isolation. And what it and what, does. And what it does in a previous podcast and how impactful that is. So here again is something massively impactful that can cause huge levels of resentment and bitterness mm -hmm. that he somehow did not uh, lean into. Well, he transcended it. He managed to transcend it. And this is the thing that is fascinating in terms of his levels of resilience and his, his vision and his values assisted him as well in being able to hold on to the end goal and his capacity to endure whatever he was going through with keeping the end in mind, which was a free and democratic South Africa. And then it didn't stop there. He talks about one of the state's most barbarous techniques of applying pressure imprisoning the wives and children of freedom fighters. Many men in prison were able to handle anything the authorities did to them, but the thought of the state doing the same thing to their families was almost impossible to bear. And this is very ironic because in the South Africa war, which was around the turn of the century, from 18 to 19, mm. the English did exactly the same thing. Mm incarcerating women and children in concentration camps in an effort to get the Afrikaans men to surrender, the, the ones that they were fighting. Mm -hmm. And so here we are some decades later and the same tactics being used. Seems we need to heed the lessons of the past mm -hmm. and learn from them so we don't repeat them. Yes, unfortunately, they learn those lessons and in the evil of a particular regime you know impart them again or use them again because they understand how awful they are and again being someone who is out of control who doesn't actually know what is happening on the outside it must have been enormously difficult to manage one state mm. when nelson mandela spoke at his trial at the rivonia trial he i'm going to be just reading a couple of things that he said it was a very long speech and was actually published in full by the Rand Daily Mail, even though um, it was against the law to publish uh, anything from somebody who was banned, and he was obviously banned. He talks about how they could see that there had been, he was, he was uh, answering the uh, accusation that 
he wanted to, um, that he was instilling warlike civil unrest or civil war. And he said he noticed how some young people out there were getting um, riled up and there was, an, you know, some, some drive to uh, start something that was civil war-like. And he said, we viewed the situation with alarm. Civil war would mean the destruction of what the ANC stood for. With civil war, racial peace would be more difficult than ever to achieve. We already have examples in South African history of the results of war, what you was talking about. It has taken more than 50 years, that was then, for the scars of the South African Anglo-Boer War to disappear. How much longer would it take to eradicate the scars of interracial civil war, which could not be fought without a great loss of life? on both sides. And that was what you were talking to earlier around the concentration camps, what happened between the British and the Boers, um, and what what the ANC was trying to prevent in actual fact. They didn't want the same thing to happen. Think in war there's only losers? Yes, he, he carries on to say, during my lifetime, I have catered myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. I think in the context of the civil unrest that I believe that last part was misinterpreted and was in, taken as an, an implication or a, or a statement of fact that he would take up arms and effectively get more aggressive. And my take on it really, knowing what we know about his capacity and his big-heartedness and his desire for everybody to be in an inclusive society is that he was in it for the long haul and he would continue with this particular struggle until the day he died. Mm, yes, he wasn't afraid to do that. He wasn't afraid of the long haul. He was also remarkable in another way. Uh, he talks about studying while all of this was going on. He was still studying. He was studying for his LLB through the London University and his law degree. Yes. In the days before we were due to recon reconvene, this was for the trial, I wrote papers for a set of London University examinations for my LLB. It might seem odd that I was taking law exams a few days before the verdict. It certainly seemed bizarre to my guards who said I would not need a law degree where I was going, but I had continued my studies through the trial and I wanted to take the examinations. I was single-minded about it and I later realised that it was a way to keep myself from thinking negatively. I knew I would not be practicing law again very soon, but I did not want to consider the alternative. I passed the exams. Isn't that remarkable? I think it is. It's incredible. It shows great mental fortitude and great capacity to focus. And this is what we alluded to earlier about having a purpose and having a focus in terms of being able to deal with the stuff that's happening around you. Very important. Mm. that you find an activity to focus on. Because look at his external circumstances. He was arrested. There was a high probability. Well, I guess uh, it, there wasn't a high probability. It was a certainty that he was going to jail. Mm -hmm. And he would be separated from his family. 
separated from his wife, and yet he found the capacity to study and mm. take exams. It's mm. just remarkable. And it's a, that one of the, the five elements that we talk to when we say the five pillars of emotional fitness, that thinking part, which is about learning. Mm. It's about focusing and learning, lifelong learning, one of the pillars that he was embracing. And he does say it helped him not focus on the negative as well. So they were about to be, um, they were obviously charged and they were getting ready to be transported to Robben Island. And he talks about them waiting for that. And he says, we sat on the dusty floor, him and the other trialists, singing and chanting, reliving the final moments of the trial. The warders provided us with sandwiches and cold drinks and Lieutenant Van Veek was perched in the back with us. He was a pleasant fellow and during a lull in the singing, he offered his unsolicited opinion on our future. Well, he said, you chaps won't be in prison long. The demand for your release is too strong. In a year or two, you'll be out and you will, ret will return as national heroes. Crowds will cheer you. Everyone will want to be your friend. Women will want you. Ach, you fellows have it made. We listened without comment. But I confess his speech cheered me considerably. Unfortunately, his prediction turned out to be off by nearly three decades. Wow, that's something to contemplate. Yes, well, that's the story, isn't it? Three decades, well, nearly three decades. Imagine. And yet that prediction did come true. It did come true. And isn't this the thing? Sometimes we do expect some change. We do expect something to move and shift. And we want it to be soon. We want it to be tomorrow or next week or next year. And it doesn't. It can sometimes take decades for these changes to take place. But I think that it's probably just as well that we don't know how long it's going to take. Well, I think if anything, what we can take out of this, certainly for me, is that and we have not had it easy getting traction everywhere all the time with our work, certainly been chased out of spaces, laughed out of spaces, ridiculed out of spaces. When it comes to talking about emotional fitness, you're busy putting all of this together into a book. And so at some point we'll be able to share some of these anecdotes. But it really does say that you're either in it or you're not in it. And if you're in it, make sure that you have the capacity to be in it for the long haul. And we've seen that consistently is that Nelson Mandela put his hand up and said, this is what I believe in and I'm prepared to do whatever it takes mm. to the point of death. Sure. And it's quite remarkable. Mm. I mean, who knows how much longer it, well, it couldn't have gone on for much longer because the environment was such that the timing was right for this shift. Do you know that he was 46, 46 when he was incarcerated in Robben Island. And it was 27 more years until he was released. It's mm, amazing. But to last that long. Yes, 46. Uh, you know, you, you're, still, you're still young at 46. He talks about, and this is while they were incarcerated, and it was obviously 27 years of some of the most awful mind-numbing uh, situations that they had to go through. But he says, our survival depended on understanding what the authorities were attempting to do to us. 
and sharing that understanding with each other. So he wasn't there alone, of course. He was there with other trialists and other prisoners. It would be very hard, if not impossible, for one man alone to resist. I do not know that I could have done it had I been alone. But the authority's greatest mistake was keeping us together. For together, our determination was reinforced. We supported each other and gained strength from each other. Whatever we knew, whatever we learned, we shared. And by sharing, we multiplied whatever courage we had individually. And that talks very much into this whole essence or sense of community. Mm-hmm. And from... Connectedness. Connectedness, building community, building a capacity to persevere, to mm. consider what might be possible in a situation like that. Mm, yes, and that you can't do it on your own. You do have to have others with you. You do need to get like-minded people together and work together because we all have our dips and we all have our highs and lows. And when the one is at a high, the other one can is at a low, you can pick them up. And it really does help to be in a community of people that want the same thing so that you can work together and pick each other up when some of us are not feeling that great. No, absolutely. Need people, need each other. We need each other as human beings. I know I need you, you need me, we need you. (laughs) Yes. And uh, certainly what we've just gone through for the last two and a half odd years Mm-hmm. You know, really has been an attempt in some ways to to split and to mm-hmm. break up communities, and it's vitally important that we remember that we are social beings, human beings, and we need one another. Absolutely, and this is part of us reaching out and connecting with others out there, and we hope that doing those the others, podcast, yes, mm-hmm. doing the podcast, and we hope that you'll reach out to us. Um, if you are like-minded and want to join in with our uh, well, We have a community, community of practice, mm, yes. Absolutely. And we meet once a month, and if you would like to be part of that, then get in touch, because mm-hmm. it really is about building capacity and seeing that we actually have more in common than we might believe or think. And as a last, because of course we can't possibly, this is nowhere near the end of the book, but certainly as a last reflection, Nelson Mandela writes that he never, I never seriously considered the possibility that I would not emerge from prison one day. I never thought that a life sentence truly meant life and that I would die behind bars. Perhaps I was denying this prospect because it was too unpleasant to contemplate. But I always knew that someday I would once again feel the grass under my feet and walk in the sunshine as a free man. I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I cannot say. Part of being optimistic is keeping one's head pointed towards the sun, one's feet moving forward. Point towards the sun and the shadows fall behind. Yes. And you keep moving forward. You keep moving forward. On that long walk. Yes, on that long walk in life. Absolutely. And we've come to the end of the podcast. And, you know, usually it's me that ends the podcast with a poem. What are you saying? Today, Matthew is going to be signing us out with a poem and a very special poem and one very connected to our subject today. The poem is called Invictus and it's by William Ernest Henley. 
and it was Nelson Mandela's, one of Nelson Mandela's favorite poems. There was even a movie created mm -hmm. called Invictus. That's right. So thank you for the opportunity to share this poem. <laughs> Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Beautiful, beautiful words to close out this podcast. Thank you, Matthew, for putting up your hand and accepting and saying yes to that offer to close out our podcast today. Well, you're very welcome. And I with can't that, say that I do it with such a plum as you, <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed listening to it. You have a beautiful voice. So. And with that, we've come to the end and it's time to say farewell. It's been inspirational talking about a man that was so much part of our lives, but not because obviously we never met him, but has done so much for us, our country and the world. And for me, I'd just like to remind you to be kind and to be gentle with yourselves. And until we meet again, from me, Chantal, bye for now. And from me, Matthew, may you walk like him, talk like him, be like him. Here's to being like Nelson Mandela. See you soon and bye for now. And if you enjoyed this podcast, and haven't already done so, then subscribe or follow. Yeah, follow us. And mm -hmm. if you'd like to know more about what it is that we do, we invite you to visit us at our website, which is fifth.place. Yes, that's all it is, the number 5th.place. And you can also learn how to build your emotional fitness by taking a course. We have an audio course called How to Master Your Emotions or an Emotional Fitness Class. And we recommend taking regular emotional fitness classes as part of your strategy to building your emotional fitness. And all of these links can be found in the description. For this particular episode. Mm -hmm. And then we do work in communities and under-resourced spaces still. And if you found this podcast to be of value and would like to match this value, then we invite you to make a donation to us at Fifth Place, which does enable us to do more of the community-based work in those particular spaces. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Thank you so much.